morning. My name is Doug. I'm the pastor here at Parkview East Campus Pastor, and so glad that you are here with us this morning. Um, I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, to open them to Mark chapter 9. We're in Mark chapter 9 this morning. If you do not have a Bible, the, the words are not going to be on the screen, but we do have Bibles in the back. You could raise your hand, and they will be, somebody will come around and, and bring a Bible to you. So if you need a Bible, um, go ahead and raise your hand. I will let you know as well that if you are, are new at Parkview East, um, the way we do kids' ministry here is that we alternate from one week to the next. So one week the kids are in their classes, K through 6, the 6th grade are in their classes, and the next week they are in here. And so we see a lot of value in that, personally, and honestly, like, it's, it's a great thing for our kids to grow up and know what it's like to be in a church that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ and is able to get value out of sitting in here and worshiping with mom and dad and, and listening to the word proclaimed. And so we want our kids in this church to grow up and, and not leave the church when they leave school, right? We want them to find a good, healthy church that proclaims the gospel of Jesus and get plugged in. And so we see a lot of value in that. So I say that just to warn you that there might be some moving around in a service with kids in here. If it's a place that, that they're, they're going to be sitting, there might be some moving around and we're okay with we're okay with that. So we are, uh, as as Doug mentioned, we are walking through the book of Mark as a church. And um, what we saw at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus issued a call to, to his disciples. His call was simply, "Follow me." He, he called them. He said, "Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." Since that call was issued, these 12 men have really been on a journey with Jesus. They've been following Jesus and they have witnessed in his presence the miraculous and the prophetic. Miracles, sermons, parables, opposition, through all of which Jesus has been revealing his true nature, who he really is to these men, that he is the Messiah. It's necessary for these men to have a proper understanding of who Jesus is. During his day, there was a buzz. You can imagine the crowd seeing the same miracles that these disciples were seeing, some of them benefiting from his healings. There was a buzz, lots of attention and fame surrounded Jesus as he went from one town to the next. And, and on the road, we saw a few ver chapters ago in chapter 8, we saw on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Everybody's talking about Jesus. What are they saying? Who do they think that I am? And they told him, well, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. See, even just a chapter before the verse, the passage that we have this morning, there is still uncertainty. There is still a little bit of confusion surrounding the nature of Jesus, who he is. Jesus gave them one sign after another. And last week we read this beautiful passage where Jesus chose three of his disciples. He walked them up on a mountaintop and there on the mountain in the presence of these three faithful followers, the veil of Jesus's full glory falls to the floor and is completely and totally revealed. Amazing. These three disciples got to see Jesus in his full glory. Now, this uncertainty of who Jesus is is a challenge that the disciples faced in their day, and it is a challenge that remains for us today. Who is Jesus? Just like in the disciples' day, lots of confusion, we see it today. And just like in their day, there is absolute necessity that we have a proper understanding of who he is. 
See, who Jesus is has radical implications for us on what it means to follow him. If we're going to follow Jesus, who he is bears a great deal of weight on what it looks like to follow him. And so what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to gain some insight just on who Jesus is, but what it means to be a follower of him. So our passage this morning is, is Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at primarily verses 33 through 50. It is a little bit larger chunk than what we have been covering. Um, and I'm, not going to, I'm just going to tell you in advance that what we're going to see here is kind of three different interactions and teachings that Jesus gives. And I'm not going to plunge real deep into each of them, but we're going to find a lesson that we can apply from each one of them. Okay, So normally, if, if I look at this, this is really... I could probably easily make a case to, to make three sermons out of this. And so what I'm not going to, you can thank me later. I'm not going to stand before you this morning and preach three full sermons, although it's been tempting, all right? It's been tempting, all right? So Mark chapter 9, I'm going to read and, and then we'll pray. Mark chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what are you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of, of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and, and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we open your word this morning, we, we pray that your spirit would be in this place, Father, and that you would speak your word to your people, that you would use it in such a way to encourage your people, to challenge your people, to convict your people if need be, Father. Lord, I pray that, um, that, that the very truth of your word would be imprinted on our hearts, Lord, and that our lives would be formed and shaped around it. Father, I pray that you would give me grace and that you would give me strength as I speak it now. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. 
Yesterday I was driving in the car and I was listening to NPR and This American Life was on. I don't know if any NPR fans are here in the house, but I, I love This American Life. It's a, an awesome radio program. And they, they were running a show that they aired back in 2008, which was telling the story of Bobby Dunbar. And I don't know if anybody here is familiar. I had never heard this story before, but it is famous and apparently I, I was um, unaware of it and just living in ignorance my entire life up until this point. But Bobby Dunbar, fascinating story. Um, he was a four-year-old boy, boy who was from a town in Louisiana. And I'm not going to attempt to say the name of the town because I probably can't pronounce it right. But he was from a town in Louisiana in August of 1912. Him and his family went on a fishing trip. They went on a fishing trip to a nearby lake. And, and shortly into the fishing trip on August 23rd, the worst, every parent's worst nightmare happens for this family. Bobby Dunbar goes missing. He disappears, completely vanishes. The family is completely devastated, as you can imagine, and it's not soon after where a huge search takes place. Authorities, family members, friends, everyone in the area is searching for Bobby Dunbar. Soon, months would pass, and, and what was hope would, would turn into fear that the absolute worst thing happened to this boy. Rumors would start that he fell off of a bridge probably during the fishing trip and was eaten by alligators. Some eight months would pass and, and eventually authorities would come across a itinerant handyman traveling through Mississippi by the name of William Walters and William had with him a boy and this boy bared close resemblance to that of Bobby Dunbar. So they arrested this handyman and they took the boy and they, they brought him to Louisiana and reunited him with his family. Now, the reports get a little, a little conflicted at this point. Some say that the, the mom saw him and, and the boy saw her and called out mother. But, but most tend to say that there wasn't the kind of reuniting that you would expect after eight months of being separated. That, in fact, when she saw him, that she wasn't completely certain that that boy was her son. And so there was some confusion during this time. It wasn't until later when they were together and, and the mother was bathing this boy, about four, four and a half years old, that she would see birthmarks and, and scars and moles. And, and the presence of those marks provided for this mother assurance and confidence that this was indeed her boy. Now... Bobby Dunbar, this new boy, would stay with this family and he would live his entire existence as Bobby Dunbar. But meanwhile, there was a woman who lived out east and, and she actually was missing her son. His name was Bruce Anderson. And the itinerant handyman said that that boy is not Bobby Dunbar, but he's actually Bruce Anderson, whose mother entrusted her, him to my care and he was with me and he was helping me in my work. Four-year-old, I don't know how that works, but somehow, this is 1912, okay, I don't know, everybody has a use, and, and that was this boy's use, apparently. And so there was lots of confusion, and, and later in 2008, there would be a, 2004, there'd be a DNA test that would prove that his relatives actually had no DNA similar to that of the Dunbars, right? But the point is this, the, the mother's assurance of the nature, of the identity, of the authenticity of this boy, her confidence was verified by the marks on 
this boy. The marks that he had gave her assurance, and it would form his identity and eventually form his destiny. These marks, she thought, proved his identity as Bobby Dunbar. The passage that we have before us this morning really is about authentic, real discipleship. And just like Bobby Dunbar, if we sitting here this morning are the real deal when it comes to following Jesus, there are certain marks. There are certain marks that should be present in our life. There are certain marks that we should bear if we are genuine, real followers of Jesus. In verse 40, Jesus makes a statement, which I think is a very critical statement as we walk through this text this morning. He says, for the one who is not against us is for us. The one who is not against us is for us. With this statement, where discipleship is concerned, Jesus is making a very simple point. Where discipleship is concerned, there is absolutely no middle ground. For the one who is not against us is for us. Between chapters 8 and 10, three times, Jesus will give this prediction about the cross and the suffering that he will endure, revealing to him that he is not just the Messiah, but he's also the suffering servant. He does it in chapter 8. He does it right before our passage here in verses 30 through 32, and he will do it again in chapter 10. Jesus is showing them that in light of this reality, the suffering servant, who he is, in light of who he is, how they then shall live. Between and around these passages, Jesus brings clarity to this idea of what one of his disciples looks like. Jesus, we saw before, he gave a lesson on suffering, right? Anyone who would follow Jesus would deny himself and take up his cross. What we saw last week is that Jesus would give them a lesson on glory, on glory and he would reveal their, his glory to them and, and the glory that they would participate in after they endure this suffering. And then following that, when he comes down from the mountain, if you remember, he heals the, the demonic, the boy that was filled with the demon spirit, and he gives them, his disciples, a lesson on faith. What we have in our passage here this morning, so he talks about suffering, glory, and faith. The three marks that we see in our passage this morning, marks that should be present in a disciple's life, are that of humility, uh, of humility, of generosity, and of fight. Humble, generous, and fight. The three words that I think that will be most helpful for us this morning. And the first story, the first part of the story, verses 33 through 32, we see that a disciple of Jesus is one who should be humble in spirit. They, they come down from the mountain. He passes through Galilee, and when they reach their desti destination, this is most likely Peter and Andrew, the house of Peter and Andrew, Jesus asks them a simple question. On the way, I noticed you guys were arguing. What were you arguing about? What was, it, what was the subject of this argument? Jesus is not asking his disciples because he doesn't know. He's asking because he knows exactly what they were talking about, and it needs to be addressed. 
Apparently along the way, the disciples who are still trying to digest to understand who Jesus is, perhaps what they had seen on the mountain, the miracle that they had witnessed, sensing the greatness of the man who is before him, they wanted nothing more than to be associated with the greatness and elevated by that greatness. These men see it as an opportunity for themselves to be great. Their leader, their mentor, the one who is pouring into them is the Messiah, full of the glory of God. This guy is great. And because we're his disciples, we too are going to be great. So an argument begins to break out. We encounter this again, the same desire for self-promotion in chapter 10 between James and John as they decide who's going to sit at the right and the left hand in glory. But Jesus' response here reveals once again that these men are struggling to understand the nature of his kingdom. And I love the fact that Jesus, how he responds, he does not respond out of frustration, right? These guys have been with him. He's been teaching them lesson after lesson after lesson of who he is and who they should be. And and here in this moment, they're arguing after he just revealed his glory to them. If it was me, I would be a little frustrated. How do you not get it? How how are you missing the, the idea here? But Jesus sits down with them. He even incorporates an object lesson in the lesson, okay? He he shows them. He takes the opportunity to show them what greatness looks like. And his point is simple. Greatness looks like being last, not first, and being a servant of all. Jesus then takes a child who is in their company. He embraces This child puts his arms around the child and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Right? In the Greco-Roman world where, where this was all taking place, it, you know, if we think about American Western culture, we live in a really a child-centered culture. And, and it couldn't be further from the case in the Greco-Roman world. Right? In our world, most of our lives, if kids are in our home, like revolve around the kids' activities. Where they go is where we go. Our calendar is scheduled based around their activities. And, and many homes live child-centered homes. It couldn't be further from the case in the Greco-Roman world, right? Children did not have such a place within the culture. They they offered no utility. Jesus' point is simple. True greatness is found not in rank or in position, but in character and service. His principle is simple. If you want to be high, you must first Go low. If you aspire to greatness, the path to greatness is that of humility and service. Jesus, what I think is interesting, is not changing their ambition, right? He is not saying, don't want to be great. What he's doing is he's challenging the direction in which you pursue greatness. He's not changing their ambition. He's challenging the direction. Greatness in the kingdom looks like service and humility in this world. And as followers of Jesus, this, is, this idea of humility is a mark that we should all bear. It's a mark that we should bear, whether it's at work or in home, at school, wherever we go. We should be considering the needs of others before we think of the needs of, our, of ourselves. We should constantly be looking for those around us who we can serve. A true follower of Jesus is one who is humble.
In the next story, we see that Jesus reveals that somebody who is a follower of Jesus should also not just be humble in their own spirit, but should also be generous towards others. To show, I think, off his zeal for Jesus, John says, Teacher, we saw someone casting demons out in your name. Now, just pause real quick. Did anyone see that coming? There is a disciple, kind of a rogue disciple, apart from Jesus and his disciples, who is walking around, exercising the power of Christ, and casting out demons. This should be a bit of a surprise. To this point, all of the kingdom expansion, all of the gospel proclamation, and the story has centered on Jesus and his ministry with the disciples. Now they come across this man doing the very work of Jesus, but he is not one of them. He is someone who is outside of their tribe. This is someone who is outside of their community, perhaps outside of their culture, outside of their circle. This is someone who is not one of them. He's not one of us, but he is doing the work of Jesus. So how did John and the disciples respond when they encountered this renegade disciple? Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop them. What is their first response when they encounter this outsider? Someone other than them who is doing the work of Jesus. Immediately, they try to stop him. Who does this guy think he is? What right does he have to be walking around doing the work of the Lord when he isn't one of us? How how dare he? Who does he think he is? And it's so interesting, the reason they tried to stop him is because, he says, he was not following us. He was not following us. Us. Jesus doesn't say we tried to stop him because he was not following, or sorry, John doesn't say we tried to stop him because he wasn't following you, Jesus. He said we tried to stop him because he was not following us. What, when you hear that, what words jump to your mind? Proud, suspicious, jealous, possessive of what Jesus was doing with them. What right does this guy have? Who does he think he is? Doesn't he know who we are? We put in time with Jesus. He called us. He would make us fishers of men. He unpacked the It was us. When he would teach a lesson, he would pull us aside. And he would walk through the significance, the meaning of these parables. Who does this guy think he is? What right does he have Don't you know who we are? We are the only ones who are authorized to do such work. This guy had better get into his place. Stop what you're doing. The the disciples were so anxious to maintain their privilege and their control that their first instinct was to oppose someone who wasn't a part of their tribe. Their first instinct was to shut it down. They built walls around who they were, and anyone who claimed to be about the kingdom business, if they weren't one of them, they saw as a threat. They looked at with suspicion. So much so that they would command him to stop freeing people of demons. They would rather people be taken over 
by the demonic powers than to have someone outside of their clique be responsible for the healing. I mean, as you hear that, it, it kind of makes me sick a little bit. Like, are you serious? But I think the truth is, if we were to look at our hearts and sometimes the way we respond to those who are not a part of our clique, who are not a part of us, who maybe do things a little differently or worship in a different place, I, I think the truth is, if we sometimes look at our own heart, we would see some of those, and I know this is true for myself, right? If we meet somebody who claims Jesus, the first thing we try to do is ask some questions just to make sure that they have a proper understanding of all the things and that we agree on every little doctrinal point, right? That, that we first start in a place of, of suspicion rather than being generous and loving and, dare I say, tolerant of people who do not identify as us. Now, I'm not suggesting, and Jesus isn't either, that we don't take truth seriously. Because there are lots of people who may claim to be one of us. I mean, Jesus spent his ministry, his life, calling out heresy and hypocrisy. He didn't, he didn't shrink back from opposing those who claimed to be pious and right before God who clearly weren't. So that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not doing that. In fact, this is Philipp, what Paul says in Philippians 1, 17 and 18, a very similar point. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. For the one who is not against us is for us. There is no middle ground. Jesus tells him, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. His first, Jesus' first impulse isn't to shut it down. His first instinct, Jesus' heart, when he hears that someone not associated with us is doing the kingdom's work, his heart is to be generous to that person, to be encouraged. Where the disciples are suspicious, Jesus is supportive. Where they are negative, he is positive. Where they are tribal and intolerant, Jesus is generous and tolerant. His response is one of grace and of generosity. This is his default posture, and it should be ours. This generous, generous approach to others is not possible in your life if your life isn't consumed with the gospel of Christ. If your life isn't centered around Jesus and his agenda, this won't be your first instinct. It will not be. If you are consumed with yourself and your kingdom and your agenda, your ego, then when you look at people from another church, from another tribe, or from a different part of the world who claim the cross of Christ and who follow him, then you will see them as a threat. You will be jealous of their success, maybe even. John Owen is helpful when he talks about this passage. He says, this, what we see, that John is trying to show off his zeal for God, right? That's what he's trying to establish is, I am zealous for God. John Owen says, this is not zeal for God. 
This is zeal for man's self. And when you're zealous for yourself, that's your response. When you encounter somebody from a different church, from a different tribe, from a different us, you respond out of pride, jealousy, because you're zealous for yourself, not for God. So we are to be generous for others. And that's my prayer for our church that we would be a people who would be so overwhelmed, so zealous for God that when we meet or when we interact with people who belong to another church, who maybe belong to another tradition, who are followers of Jesus, that we would be generous towards them, that we would be encouraged by them, that we would be ready to link arms with them. Today, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but if you've been coming here for the last couple of weeks, we have a church that meets right after us in this building. It's a Congolese church. Um, it's a pastor, uh, Mark, who I, I met several months ago, and he is a solid follower of Jesus, and he has a small group of people, really his family, and then a couple of other families that live in the neighborhood, and they meet for a couple of hours around 1230. So sometimes on Sundays, as we're leaving church, they're coming in. And one of the things I've been talking with him about recently was how, how awesome it would be is if our, if our churches could really be an encouragement to one another. If there's ways that we could be supportive. And so, so we have had discussion. Just this week I sat down with him. We had, we had lunch together and, and we read some scripture. We actually read this passage because it was the perfect passage to read and to talk through it. And one of the questions I asked him, I said, you know, I think of the American church and I, there's certain challenges that are unique to us in our culture, where the church is in our culture and in our time today. And we talked through some of the challenges. We talked about some of the challenges his church faced in the Congo. And I asked him, I asked him a question. I said, what do you think the challenges are that the American church faces today? And it's interesting what his response was. His response was, I think one of the most amazing, surprising things I've seen since I've been here, he's been here for about three years, one of the most surprising, shocking things I've seen about Christians here is that I don't know who they are. I don't know who they are. That there are people who I live next to, maybe work with, that I interact with on a regular basis, and months will pass before they even identify as a Christian. That nobody talks about Jesus. And I'm not saying that it's perfect at the church he was at before. But it was so interesting to hear that. And I think that really gets to the heart of what we read in Scripture today. That the reason we should be generous towards others is because we are so zealous for God. And Pastor Mark is saying, if people are really zealous for God, wouldn't you know they're a Christian? Wouldn't you know it by the things they talk about? Wouldn't they meet you and, and think of every opportunity within that conversation to get to Jesus? We would be a people. That really is what our prayer should be for our church, is that we would be a people who are so overcome with zeal for God that when we look at others who claim Christ, that our first response should be, praise God not one of suspicion or of threat, that we would be a people who are zealous for God. Now, the last section here shows us that one of the marks of a genuine, authentic disciple is someone who 
fights against sin. We see this in verses 42 through 50, that you fight against sin. And there's, there's three reasons here, three, three reasons why we should fight against sin. And the first one, Jesus, and, and there is so much within this text here this morning that, um, you know, honestly, I would like to preach a whole other sermon, so I'm just going to keep, I'm kidding. But I'm tempted because it's such a rich, rich and deep text I'm not going to be able to walk through every single verse, but there's just three simple points I want to make. First thing is that as Jesus talks here, what he says is that hell is real. He gives the disciples a reality of hell. In the final section in chapter 9, Mark strings together a number of Jesus' sayings or teachings that serve as warnings. The author is using really a memory device which allows him to go from one saying to another. One word from one saying causes him to go to another saying and that pattern will repeat itself throughout the section. Three times in this section, Jesus mentions hell. Go to hell, be thrown into hell, and be thrown into hell. The word translated hell is the word Gehenna and it comes from a Hebrew phrase, the Valley of Hinnon. The disciples would know what Jesus is talking about as virtually the worst place imaginable on earth. If you were to leave Jerusalem and and head southwest, it would not be long before you would be overcome by the stench of smoldering filth. That was Gehenna. Eventually you would come across a steep peak which would run down into the valley of Gehenna. Looking down into that valley, your stomach would begin to turn and your eyes would want nothing more than to look away. It was a vile, festering pit where all the city's waste was discarded and burned. The fires were burning day and night. Maggots were aplenty feasting on the carcasses. The stench was absolutely unbearable. This is Gehenna. Now, the first century Jew would know Gehenna as more than just a town dump. They would also be aware of its history and the nasty, vile place and what what brought it to the place of being the dump. There was a history there. This valley was where the wicked king Ahaz worshipped the Canaanite gods of Moloch and Baal. It was a place where the people would, would go down into this valley and as they would worship, they would sacrifice. The way they would worship is they would sacrifice their sons and daughters down here in this valley, burning their very children to death. This place is synonymous with evil and with depravity. Complete absence of anything good. Complete absence of anything desirable. Jesus taught on the reality of hell. He believed in the existence of hell. He did not hold back when it came to warning others about its reality. He didn't apologize when he talked about hell. He didn't water it down. In fact, if anything, he cranked it up. The Jesus many in our culture embrace, perhaps the one some of you embrace, is a Jesus who doesn't talk about or believe in hell. And our passage reminds us this morning that Jesus doesn't exist. That Jesus is not the Jesus we see in the Bible. Many today love the gentle, quick to embrace, the gentle Jesus who's meek and who's mild, 
who would never confront sin, who would never warn of hell, never challenge people in a way that makes them feel uncomfortable. That's the Jesus many of us today in our culture are ready to embrace. That Jesus does not exist. Yes, Jesus was gentle, right? We just saw him moments ago with a child in his arms. Jesus absolutely was gentle. Even the act of embracing this child, this gentle, lowly Jesus embracing a child was not just one of of gentle love and kindness, but simultaneously it was an act of, of cultural offense, Jesus is so compassionate, he's so gentle, he's so full of grace and love, and in his infinite love, Jesus doesn't just warn us about hell, but he rescues us from it. I can, a couple, maybe two weeks ago, I was having a devotional time with our kids at night. We do it at night because our morning schedules are a little bit off, and um, I was frustrated, right, because we're reading the Bible, and well, I'm a pastor, Right? My kids are supposed to be all in to the Bible. They're supposed to love the Bible. They're supposed to sit there with their hot cocoa. They're supposed to answer questions, all of them right. They're supposed to know scripture. They're supposed to just love this time. Go on for hours, we could. Not the case. Sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's rich. And a lot of times it's challenging. You can imagine why. It's challenging, right? I need eyes. I need ears. Listen, stop hitting. Don't poke. You know, don't do that stuff, right? Listen. Right? And a lot of times it ends up in the complete opposite direction I wanted it to. But this night I could see it heading down that path. And I stopped just real quick. And I took a different tone. And this is not a tone I normally take with them. But I thought it was appropriate. I said, can anybody tell me? And I have permission to tell the story just so you know. Can anybody tell me? Why does dad read the Bible with you at night? Why, why do we do this? I got some good answers. Also, we can learn about the Bible. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's a good answer. Also, we can go closer with God. Yes, yes, yes. I like that answer. It's a good answer. Anybody think of any other answers? And they were silent for a minute. I said, let me give you one. And again, I don't normally talk like this. And I said, the reason why I'm so interested in reading the Bible with you at night is because I don't want you to burn in hell. I don't, I don't want you to burn in hell. Hell is a real place. And when I think about the life that we've been given, it is so short in comparison to eternity. And I, being your loving father, I want nothing more in this life than to spend eternity with you in heaven. I want to be with you forever. So we read the Bible together. We open it up and we search for Jesus and we take our sin to Jesus and we cry out to Jesus so that we can center our lives around Jesus. I don't want you to go to hell. And you can imagine their eyes were like. (laughs) There was not a peep for the next 48 hours out of those kids. (laughs) I'm kidding. It lasted about 20 minutes. But I mean, I normally don't go there. I normally don't. But when it comes down to it, that's what's at stake. The most loving thing I can do with my kids is be real about hell. Jesus taught on hell more than anybody else in the Bible wrote about hell. Jesus spoke about hell. It 
was, is real. It exists. It leads me to the next point. If we don't take our sin seriously, which is the point that Jesus is making, if we don't take our sin seriously, that's where we go. Jesus dials up the language. He uses hyperbole, dramatic language, one metaphor after another to drive home the reality of hell and the severity of sin. Sin is a big deal. He gives him three metaphors to show just how big of a deal it is. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If it's your foot, cut it off. If it's your eye, take it out. It's better for you to go to heaven, just part of your body, than to go to hell with your whole body. That's how serious it is. Dramatic language. He's meaning to shock the disciples. Sin is real. It is serious. And as followers of Jesus, if we don't take sin seriously, our sin, the sin of those around us, hell is a reality, people. I think of Pastor Mark. Like, if we think about the need for us to talk about Jesus, the reality of hell, the severity of sin should cause us to look at people and in love point them to Jesus. And if we believe those things to be true, that hell is real, that sin is serious, and the reason we go to hell, then the most loving thing we can do is tell others about those truths. That's what Jesus is doing. He's not shrinking. And don't get me wrong. In my nature, when I'm sitting across the table with somebody, when I'm sipping coffee or on the phone, when I'm talking with somebody who's not a follower of Jesus, everything in my soul... Everything wants to be, in my nature, wants to be like, well, maybe hell isn't real. Like, I would love to give you nothing more than a pass. But all that would be doing would be denying the truth of Jesus, rejecting his word. There's nothing loving in that, nothing whatsoever. Hell is real. Hell is punishment, full wrath of God poured out. It is conscious. It is eternal. But the greatest news for us this morning is that hell is escapable. That hell is escapable. See, the reason we should take, we should take sin seriously is because hell exists, but it's also because Jesus took sin seriously. Hell is escapable because Jesus took sin seriously. You may look at the language that Jesus is using and you may be tempted to be like, whoa, calm down, my dude. Just calm down a little bit, right? Getting kind of over the top here. That might be our temptation. But Jesus took it so seriously, it would cost him more than a hand, right? It would cost him more than a foot. It would cost him more than an eye to deal with sin. And not just anybody's sin, your sin. That's how serious Jesus takes sin. He would give his life. He would go to the cross, absorb the full wrath of God, being abandoned and rejected, 
deserted by his friends, these men would leave him and he would hang on the cross bearing the full weight of sin for you and for me that we might experience the freedom of life in Christ. That's what he did. Sin is a big deal. And as a follower of Jesus, our job is to fight against it in our life. When we see it manifest itself in our family's lives, in our friends' lives, in our community, as it divides even the church, we are to take sin seriously. For those of you who are here today who are a follower of Jesus, he's called us to be his disciples. We must be in the regular practice of self-evaluation. Do I bear the marks of a follower of Jesus? As you examine your life, we're going to provide time to do that right now as we do communion, but as you examine your heart and your life, do you see a humble spirit within you? Do you see yourself being generous towards others? Are you about God's agenda and kingdom or about your agenda and kingdom? And do you fight against the presence of sin in your life? Do you take it seriously? That's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. And and the awesome thing about it, the awesome thing about it is that Jesus is the one who accomplished it. Jesus is the one who accomplished it. Not so that we have to earn our way. It was a gift that he has given to each and every one of us. And if you're here today and maybe, maybe you have not received that gift yet, my hope for you this morning is that you would see Jesus as the ultimate humble one, as the ultimate one who is generous towards others, who takes hell and sin Seriously, so seriously, he goes to the cross, endures the wrath of God so that you do not have to. The call is simple, come to Christ. It's the same call we read at the beginning of Mark. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He pays the price so that you do not have to. Live in the freedom that only comes from Jesus. Find real life that only exists in Jesus. As the people of God, when we come together, we regularly remember what it took so that we could be here united as a people, so that we could be here free in Jesus. It cost a lot. It was a big deal. And Jesus told his church to make a regular practice of remembering what it took so that we could be seen not as objects of wrath, but rather as sons and daughters in his kingdom. What it took, it took a great deal. And Jesus, when he leads his people, he says, calls them to remember this. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are a people marked by humility, we're a people marked by generosity, marked by fight, but we are primarily a people marked by Christ. And this blood is what seals the deal for us. It's what makes us his people. So the way we do it here at East is we have three tables that are set up. 
Um, I'm going to pray for us real quick, and then you can just help yourself to the table. There's a, uh, some chunks of bread. You can just dip it in the cup. My courage to you would be to examine your life during this time. This is primarily as we do this. This is for believers. And so if you're not a believer, if you haven't made that commitment to follow Jesus and to receive that gift of life that he extends to you, um, then, then there's no shame. Just, just hold back from the table. Um, this is a time for us as a church to evaluate our lives, to look for those marks. And the great, awesome thing about what Jesus did is where we might see that we're missing the mark, where we're off maybe, this is a time where we can bring that before Jesus. We can confess that to him. We can repent and ask for forgiveness. And you know what he'll do? He'll forgive us and he'll restore us. So that's what we're going to do right now. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you um, just for the truth this morning. Lord, we thank you. Lord, that you did not shrink back in your warning about hell. Lord, we thank you that you took our sin so seriously that it would cost you your life. Jesus, we come to you now as your people who are covered by your blood. And we rejoice in the fact that the Father looks at us. He does not see the stain of sin and guilt and shame and imperfection, Lord, but he sees us covered by that blood. We thank you. We know what that cost you. And, and our prayer now is that you would do us a great deal of grace in showing us areas in our life that may be out of step with that gospel truth. That we would ask for forgiveness, Lord, and that, that you would grant it, Lord, and that we would be a people who would day by day walk in obedience and faith. We ask these things in your name. Amen.